note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We get- yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things Lego games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of Lego games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world. The Lego Group. Today's episode is a two-part series, right? We're starting with part one, and we're taking a look at one of the biggest investments in game development that the Lego Group has ever made in a single game, and that is Lego Universe. That's right. You and I were closely associated with, you know, the, the behind the scenes and the making of this game. It was, it was very uh, intense. Mm-hmm. For those of you unaware of the title, the idea was to create an online game that would allow adults and children to adventure in worlds built of Lego bricks and empowered by imagination. That's right. And, and while on paper, the five-year project, which, by the way, ultimately cost more than $125 million at the time, included the effort of more than 450 stakeholders— but only ran for less than two years once it launched. While that effort may have been viewed as a failure, the tremendous work by both the Lego Group and the developers at NetDevil to bring to life such a broadly appealing idea was in many ways a tremendous success. The game's prolonged development brought with it a number of important insights into a vast array of complex ideas, including how the company could leverage its brand to create its first online game, the the talent, the infrastructure and business systems required to run such an effort, the importance and cost of creating and maintaining a robust child safety system, and perhaps most importantly, the need to follow one of the key rules of game development— Nail it before you scale it. And that this game ever launched, despite the missteps, the challenges, the feature creep, is a tribute, I think, to the deep commitment that the hundreds of employees at NetDevil had to the project and the willingness by a massive support team at the LEGO Group to go far above and beyond to make sure the game would see the light of day. The early 2000s was a tumultuous time for the LEGO Group, and in particular, those at the company working on ways to bring LEGO digital experiences to life. The SPU Darwin program, which launched in 1995 and sought to digitize the LEGO brick, among other things, was ingloriously shut down in early 1999. Many of those who came aboard at the company in the wake of the closure either weren't told about Darwin and its efforts or treated it as a sort of bad word, not to be mentioned or even discussed. The Lego Group was also still recovering from its full-blown economic crisis, which saw the company post its first ever loss in 1998. And while the first Lego video game came out in 1995, the title Fun to Build, and seven more were released in the following years, the company was still struggling with how to represent its ideals in digital form. Ronnie Scherer, who is our executive producer, right, Brian, on Bits and Bricks, uh, who we know personally, he back then was uh, a director overseeing development on LEGO Universe. He was hired in 2002 at the LEGO Group to work with the team on helping to create a digital system of play for the company. I started working for the Lego Group in May of 2002, to be exact. Mm-hmm. Like, like these are just like a few years after Darwin was shut down, and the uh, atmosphere was not particularly exciting. Like, like the um, early signs of our, you know, uh, soon to come economic crisis was was already there. Um, there was not a very sort of strong focus on or love for digital play overall, which surprised me a little bit. Like, I don't think that was what I had anticipated, you know, from the interview process to actually starting my job there. 
And among the dozens that Ronnie worked with was Mark Hansen, who would later become the game's senior director. Hansen said that the Lego group was looking at what children would be doing in the future and talking through ways to solve the question of digital play. Inside the company, I would say, I mean, a gentle way to say it is digital illiterate. <laughs> you know, they just come out of a, a huge making the digital brick project that was really quite important to the organization. They spent a lot of money. I was not in the organization at that time. But the memories of that project, the ideas of that project, where they would go and how big that project could be, and then it failed, and it failed miserably. So it was quite hard to overcome. And so it was really about, you know, positioning that we want to do something. And I think Jorn V at the time as CEO and Lisbeth and Mass Nipper, I believe those three, they were the gutsy ones who said, we, we can't stop where we come from and we need to go to the next step. So maybe as a side note here, Brian, um, one of the gutsy ones that Mark is talking about here, who is named Jorn V, um, this took me a little bit to understand as an outsider and non-Danish speaker, but Jorn V uh, was the former CEO of the Lego Group and, and currently serves as the executive chairman of the Lego Brand Group. Um, so Jorn V is Jorgen Vig Nutstorp, uh, and I, I probably just totally slaughtered that name, but it's, it's important to understand that when you hear the Danish say Jorn V, uh, they're talking about him and, you know, it's what Americans would probably say, you know, Jorgen or Jorgen, you know. Yeah, and he is, as you've pointed out, he's sort of the Michael Jordan of the Lego group. Yeah, or Michael Jordan, you know. <laughs> Sorry, that was a lame joke, like a dad joke. Anyway, let's continue. Yeah, so so work on the lego.com website, including adding interactive experiences, was also opening the company's eyes to this different side of customers, making the company realize that children might want to play more digitally. So around 2002, a team at the company started diving a bit deeper into what it would take to create an online world. That led to the creation of Project Arena, which was this group of six to eight people working on ways to bring the digital experience discussed by the Lego group to life. Early concept boards and visions for the project included playing with digital Lego bricks online, uh, all inspired by the rise of massively multiplayer online games like at the time EverQuest, and also other sorts of multiplayer gaming in general. In the work we did on Project Arena... This is Ronnie Scherer speaking again. Some of the concept boards and, and vision ideas that we, we drew up and articulated was this idea of creating virtual Lego objects once and using them for many different things in many different contexts. And one of the applications of this idea of building with virtual Lego was, was playing with it and playing with it online. Over time, the idea began to take shape into what would become Lego Digital Designer, or LDD, a piece of software that gave users a seemingly bottomless bucket of digital bricks with which to construct. The team also worked on a sort of roadmap to envision how LDD and the digital system of play around it would evolve over time, and one of those directions was called Virtual World, uh, which was this idea of kids uh, coming together to create and share and a team of eight or so continued work internally on that notion. And by the end of 2004, the group set about researching whether doing a Lego MMO was possible and how much it would cost. Uh, it was considered a high-level ideas project uh, with a low possibility of even being approved. Right. And so a year later, Lego Factory was launched. And while not a big financial success, it provided a lot of insight for the Lego group into how children and adults would play with digital bricks and how the company would operate a customized toy business. Here, we hear uh, Hansen and Scherer talking a bit about both the impact of those programs and how it slowly led to exploration of an online game. So then uh, we progressed and did multiple versions of Lego Digital Designer and enhanced the capability, understood what kids were, were working with and what they liked, what they disliked. And it, it gave um, birth pretty much to a concept called Lego Factory. And Lego Factory launched August 25th of 2005. And that was a major milestone to be able to pull off that 
you could do a digital build and build it in a physical box product to be sold in retail. And so a couple of months prior to launching Lego Factory, we started the investigation into doing a massively multiplayer online game. And at that time, you know, technology for, for this was really an infancy stage. It was actually prior um, World of Warcraft. And we later drew up sort of a roadmap for how we envisioned it to sort of evolve over time. And for me, at least, that, that was what became LEGO Universe, which was this, this idea of kids coming together, creating, sharing. Uh, but, but it was, of course, a very different type of vision than the game that it ended up coming. The official, you know, code name we used in the beginning was um, Lego Worlds Online, and uh, you know everybody was like, "So what is this exactly? And is virtual building going to replace the physical building? And why is you know Lego putting so much effort into a project of software?" Um, th- there was many, many factors here in, in the early days. So the push to win the LEGO group over on the idea of LEGO Universe sounds like it was more a war of attrition, uh, the need to constantly pitch and repitch the idea rather than one single spectacular presentation. During the latter half of 2004 and most of 2005, Mark Hansen and others kept pushing for the idea that the LEGO group had to do something with online gaming and that multiplayer had to play a significant role. In one pitch, for instance, Hansen tried using physical bricks set up in front of everyone on a table to demonstrate how children could play together from around the world. But that just led to questions about how the idea didn't really line up with any existing theme sets or intellectual property. And at the same time, you know, massively multiplayer online games were starting to explode in popularity, you know, culminating in many ways with the launch of Blizzard's World of Warcraft in November of 2004. Um, Lisbeth Walter, executive vice president at the LEGO Group here, explains how the idea was initially pitched to executives. Well, the first time I heard about the LEGO Universe idea, I was excited by some of the people like Ronnie Shearer and Mark uh, William Hansen. Uh, because they talked so much about the possibilities of, of creating this uh, fantastic Lego game where you would basically move the play uh, from uh, the child's room in, in the physical world and then into the virtual world uh, and to be able to create and play just like children do in the children's room. And I was excited to see because we had had quite a lot of success uh, with some video games, uh, but to me, the video games were more like a play theme that had been uh, moved into the virtual world. What I was excited about was this whole idea about building a, a Lego online community that could sort of expand and evolve uh, according to what the children really wanted in the, this world. Eventually, the Lego group bankrolled early work on the concept, but it wasn't attached to any specific theme set. And this decision would go on to haunt the game's development, Hansen said. I mean, it was just a no-go. I mean, it, it was like they, they were so thinking, okay, we support it. We think it's a good idea, but we're not going to tie it to any any product at this time. And to tell you the truth, when you look back, that was probably one of the most devastating decisions we could have made in the company at that time. Because it proved out over time that they did not have enough skin in the game, that it made it easy to throw rocks over the fence rather than to be part of a solution. The idea was officially greenlit in October 2005, just a half year or so after the launch of the tremendously successful LEGO Star Wars The Video Game. While the LEGO Star Wars video game and the decision to develop outside of the company was in some ways a byproduct of the LEGO group's earlier financial struggles, by the end of 2005, the company was starting to turn profitable again. The team was given tacit approval to go forward with the concept, though it sounds like this was in part because it wasn't viewed as very risky and the LEGO group knew it had to do something in the space. What had won over those inside the company was the idea of building out a Lego online community that could expand and evolve with time according to what children really wanted. And after getting approval for what was codenamed Lego Worlds Online, 
Hansen and Martin Prus, the only two still on this new project at the time, sat down with Vita and some marketing people to brainstorm ideas for how to find the right developer. I remember the brief to the, to the team that was uh, involved in, in, in finding uh, the game developers. I, as I recall, we, we, we sort of looked from a desk research point of view as at quite a lot of, of different uh, game developers. And what we were in particular looking for was somebody who really understood the Lego idea and who could sort of interpret this vision about uh, moving play from the child's room into the virtual room, uh, being able to combine the building aspect with the play aspects and, and really try to, to take that vision into a game's world. So somebody who really understood um, the Lego uh, concept. And of course, they would have to have some, some traction in terms of having developed successful games. Uh, but I think the notion of somebody who really understood Lego was important. So this group of, of this sort of small work group uh, knows they want to create a massively multiplayer online game and that whatever developer they select would need to have some sort of deep understanding of technology, of physics, and moving around a lot of polygons on the screen at the same time. The developer they ended up working with would also have to be exceptionally creative. So this is Hansen talking a little bit about that process. I would tell you that year of 2005 was phenomenal. We knew MMOG developers were where we wanted to go. We did not have the thought of it being a, a World of Warcraft venture at this time. It, it wasn't that. We knew it was going to take a lot of creativity and understanding or knowledge of physics and moving a lot of polygons around on a screen, and not many knew how to do it. So we really made one question. We said, are you interested in doing a Lego online game? And uh, we sent that out, I think, to like, I believe, like 80 developers. We had names of 80 developers at the time. And we sent it out. We got replies from 51 developers. And uh, everyone who replied, we went out and seen and did some discussion with them. Just from that, you know, we probably used seven, eight months in going through and really two to six people involved at any one time talking to all the developers. And in that discussion with those studios, you know, just explaining it to all the game companies, right away that 51 number dwindled down to about 12. And then it come down to their creativity and the creative team that they got did those people really see? And so when we went into the office and they just did some really strange things with Lego, and it was just like, that's not it. And you, you knew it then too. And so from that 12, we went down to four. That group included Microsoft, Funcom, and a relatively tiny developer based in Colorado, NetDevil. Ultimately, NetDevil's camaraderie, experience, and sheer excitement about the project won them the contract. Before LEGO Universe, before Auto Assault, Warmonger, and Jumpgate, there was just three friends working in an office and a dream. Scott Brown, Peter Grundy, and Stephen Williams knew each other from their job at an information tech company in Boulder, Colorado. They all spent a lot of time playing games online and saw the growing genre as a chance to start their own small game development business. The idea at the time was that their multiplayer online space game, Jumpgate, would be less expensive to make because most games of this type, these, these kind of online multiplayer games, they didn't have cutscenes, uh, which required the need to hire actors. Brown said he used the money he made from the sale of the company he worked at to live off and start working on Jumpgate. And the other two worked on the game as well, you know, at nights and weekends, and all working kind of out of Scott's basement. And once they landed a publisher, Grundy and Williams were able to quit their job, join the company full-time, and NetDevil was born. Scott Brown, president of NetDevil, talks to us a little bit about how they came up with that name. Peter and I are, are divers. Peter was a dive master, so he's much more advanced than I am, but I just really enjoyed <laughs> it. And so we thought, oh, let's come up with something, you know, 
shark or stingray or something, you know? Um, and of course, like even in the late nineties, all the websites were gone. <laughs> and so we found in a dictionary that fishermen called angler fish net devils because they would mm. get them caught in their nets and they thought it was weird. And we're like, Oh, we're an internet company. We wanted fish. And so that devil, that's where it came from. Eventually, the Blossoming Studio moved out of Scott Brown's basement and into a small office in Louisville, Colorado, between Denver and Boulder. We were uh, a five-man team when we started. This is Peter Grundy speaking, co-founder and art director at NetDevil. And by the time we shipped Jumpgate, we were only at nine. So I don't know if you could imagine trying to ship a uh, popular MMO with nine people. Uh, it gives you some idea <laughs> of how uh, how crazy it was. But, you know, back then, things could be done in a little bit uh, differently. And, uh, and one of the reasons we chose a space sim, too, was most of the space is empty. <laughs> so we knew we wouldn't have to build a great deal of content. Uh, so what we focused on was more the gameplay. So, yeah, it was back when gaming was done with just with a few people. And one of the first hires by the trio was Ryan Seabury, who joined in 2000 and would become the creative director on LEGO Universe. And he talks to us here a little bit about those early days working on Jumpgate and just how thrown together this was. You know, all of our desks, there were probably about 10 people total in the office. We were all crammed in there with a bunch of servers and um, little things you you remember in hindsight, they're kind of ridiculous. We, we used to run the Jumpgate beta server out of my basement in a sink it was literally on a sink. I just told everybody in the house because I had several roommates at the time, like, do never, <laughs> never use this sink. This is like our, our work server because we had nowhere else to put it. And it was actually duct taped. Like there was a hard drive that was like not, we didn't have the screws or the brackets weren't there anymore. So we had it like duct taped with some foam holding it up. Um, it's just crazy stuff like that, right? Like you just kind of, you make whatever you have work. Man, uh, that is so great, and it's. Ha- yeah. I'm, I know you met, spend some time with them, and I spent some time with them, and they're they're great guys. And yeah. it's just so typical that this is how they they were running yeah. things. They whatever they could get their hands on, they were using to get get <laughs> yeah. their game up and running. Um, I mean, a server in a sink, right, with duct tape. It's crazy. I love it. Yes. So so this game, Jumpgate, launched in two thousand and one, helping to fund the studio's further growth and leading to NetDevil landing a contract with South Korean video game developer and publisher NCSoft to create a massively multiplayer online car combat game called Auto Assault. Work on that game started in two thousand and one and took about five years. Over the course of development, the team expanded to about 40 people, and the studio grew into larger offices, first to a 1,500-square-foot office, and then to 4,000 square feet, and finally into an 8,000-square-foot office. For anyone outside the U.S., that's moving from roughly a 140-square-meter office to one about 745 square meters. By late 2005, the NetDevil team was wrapping up Auto Assault, and the founders began to ponder what they wanted to do next. They knew they wanted to work on another MMO, but hoped to do so with an existing intellectual property instead of having to build one from scratch like they had with all their other games. Let's see. So we had, Ryan and I had been talking about, we need to do another kind of a game, and and Peter, and we were saying, you know, What's the right type of game to do? What's the right feel? This is Scott Brown speaking. And we wanted to do something based on somebody else's intellectual property. And so we're talking about all the different things and brainstorming. And we had been for a couple of weeks. And then just sort of out of the blue, we get this this email. And it's like a one-liner, you know? It's like the email you'd delete if you weren't sort of paying attention kind of a thing. The email was just a pretty simple one-liner. Would you be interested in working in an online Lego world project? Here's Ryan Seabury speaking. And uh, Scott Brown got it and forwarded it to uh, Peter Grundy and myself. And uh, when I saw it come across my desk, and I you know, was sitting there tired, hadn't gotten any sleep in you know months, and I saw it come across, and I just kind of pushed back from my desk and was like, this could be like the greatest MMO of all time. And... Uh, so I immediately like ran over to Scott's office and was like, we got to do this, man. This is awesome. What's funny is the first thing Scott did was run out and bought a couple of sets of Lego. This is Peter Grundy talking. Uh, and got us all into a room. And, uh, you know, even the guys that were finishing or coding, last minute coding on auto assault to get it out the door uh, would go in late at night and they'd be helping build, a, I think we had a Star Destroyer and a Death Star and uh, we just made sure that there was a bunch of Lego bricks on our conference table. That was complete. 
we like we sort of just went crazy, right? Like we were just like, oh, and it could be this, and it could be this, and Lego is space, and Lego is fantasy, and Lego is you know pirates, and it's everything, right? And and we just started brainstorming, and brainstorming, and so of course we replied, uh, and then they came back wanting us to fill out uh, an RFP, and it was like the biggest, most complex RFP we'd ever seen. <laughs> you know, honestly, we didn't even know how to answer like a lot of the <laughs> the questions in this doc, and it was thick. Um, but it was fun to go through and do it, and that got us down into the selection process where they came out and visited. And so, yeah, that was a pretty exciting day, certainly. <laughs> I like how Scott is so understated with that, you know. I mean, you and I both met, you know, Scott and Ryan, and uh, they're just like that. You know, Scott's kind of a little bit more reserved, a little bit more Very laid back. back. Yeah, 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 and Ryan is probably like, you know, totally going nuts about this and very excited. And it was the answer, you know, it just fell into their lap or into their inbox, you know. Uh, pretty cool. Yeah, and I'm sure Ryan was basically a big smile on two feet at that point. <laughs> he yeah. must have been so happy. Totally. So they, they they get this first meeting, uh, which ends up going great for them, which is fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I think more importantly, or maybe as importantly, uh, not only does the meeting go well, but the, it so happens that NetDevil also meets two of the main requirements the LEGO group has, which is they had to have at least developed two massively multiplayer online games, which they had just, you know, they were just wrapping up their second one. Yeah. And uh, they also had to be willing to do third-party development, which they were actually looking for a project to do so that, like, it fit perfectly. So Ryan Seabury still clearly remembers the moment the email arrived. He was elated, slightly stunned, but above all else, excited. He scattered Lego sets around the office to inspire the team in hopes of coming up with the sort of pitch that could win over the biggest toy company in the world. Seabury ended up heading up the two pitches, one to Hansen and Martin Pruss, and the next to a larger group of about 10 from the Lego group. And among them was also Executive Vice President Lisbeth Walter, who talks to us a little bit about that meeting. I went with Mark to visit with NetDevil uh, before we selected them. And then we discussed quite a bit about the, the whole concept. And especially, I think, I was impressed with Ryan Seabury's uh, vision of, of what this game could be. Um, we visited, I think, two other um, game players at the time as well. Uh, but, but Ryan really had that really good understanding of um, the Lego concept. Net Devil popped out above all else. This is Mark Hansen speaking. I mean, just from the day one visit, Ryan Seabury, Scott Brown, uh, Peter, I mean, these guys... You could just see how genuine they got along. They just come off a very difficult MMO development, but how humble they were. And knowing what they didn't pitch us at how great they were. They were like, this is what we learned. This is what we know. And this is what we can bring. And then the enthusiasm. I mean, Seabury was like through the roof of Lego and just a genius thinker. I mean, could, could really do it. And Peter Grundy and Scott Brown, how they could support him. Even though Scott being a CEO, I can remember the first couple of visits there. I mean, Scott, you would never know he was a CEO. You knew through his leadership, but just how he supported Ryan and just give him. And Peter, I mean, those two, how they just let him flourish and how they supported each other. From my perspective, was huge in team and just uh, allowing that to happen. So while the specifics of timing and details of the two pitches are sort of a, a bit lost to time, remember this is obviously a long time ago, Seabury does recall a sort of bonus video presentation he created for the Lego group. He, he tells us that he remembers going to the office kitchen and as he put it, slamming back a Guinness locking himself in a conference room, turning on the video camera, and sort of going crazy with these sticky notes. The sticky notes had sort of all the main points I wanted to get across. And so um, I kind of popped up in front of the camera and started pulling sticky notes off the whiteboard one at a time that were sort of talking about this, you know, we need to have like a, a big overarching narrative of, of sort of a good versus evil conflict that you can buy into as a player. I uh, talked about ways of players forming identities uh, as part of that conflict and then the sort of beginning ideas of uh, the different factions that ended up in the game. And, um, and then how that could lead to 
more open-ended sandbox play that would be, you know, more kind of traditional open-ended Lego play. And so what I was trying to do was weave the kind of the analog, I guess, of Lego play themes. So they're all the different, you know, you've got Castle City and now branded things like Star Wars and, and so on that inspire kids when they're playing with the actual physical bricks to build something very specific, right? So you follow the blueprints and you build something. So it was a pitch of, you know, how do we tie in like traditional MMO and traditional game narrative structures into something that ultimately we want to be a creative sandbox and have all this other potential. And so uh, it ended up being like a, I don't know, three minute video or something. So it's easily digestible. Um, you know, I was a little tipsy, so I probably came across a little kooky on it. And um, I, I heard, I don't know, this is indirectly, but I heard that uh, Kel Kirk Christensen, uh, who was the owner of the company at the time, saw it and was just like, yeah, this is great, right? Like, and, and I guess the, you know, the passion and enthusiasm came through in the video there. And then um, that in turn, you know, led to a more formal uh, presentation with where we got a little more serious about all the other aspects of it and how we would actually, you know, run the process of development and all that kind of stuff. My name is Ryan Seabury. I'm the project lead at NetDevil working on the LEGO Worlds Online project. What is LEGO Worlds Online? It was one of the greatest pitches ever. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Uh, it was just, it was so awesome. The only thing I can even remember in the game industry that I ever thought was as awesome was the guy's famous uh, Warhammer. I think it was like an E3 presentation. I feel like Ryan's was right up. Like he was that energetic, that excited. This idea of how you would pull all these worlds together. It was one of those things where it was like a 10 out of 10, right? Like it was amazing. Imagination is what makes things like spaceships and castles and lions. Oh my. The presentation laid out an impressive, expansive idea that easily ticked all of the boxes for the LEGO group. And once the deal was landed, Seabury became the game's creative director. Initially, Seabury tried to wear multiple hats, but it became quickly apparent that this was becoming the biggest project that NetDevil had ever worked on. Eventually, he refocused his energies on the creative side, and others were brought in to help with the business side. We didn't just see it as like a, a sort of golden business opportunity. In fact, I think more so we saw it as this amazing creative opportunity. Here, Ryan Seabury again. And that, that's what drove us, right? As the founders of NetDevil, we loved making cool stuff and we loved making online worlds. And, um, and it was more, I think, that creative side of things that drove us. And I think that came through in our initial meetings with Lego that, you know, we were genuinely excited about the brand and excited about the potentials that it would bring to a massively multiplayer space uh, and not so much just trying to like, you know, kiss up to one of the biggest brands in the world sort of thing. The contract was signed in late 2006 and in April 2007, Auto Assault released, but the player numbers weren't very good for that game. So the game's publisher asked NetDevil to keep running the game, but also cut down on costs. So what NetDevil does is they essentially shift part of the team that was working on that project over to working on some of the early LEGO Universe work. The, the team started with just three or four people from the studio working through the basic design questions and, and technical limitations and some of the high-level game design ideas. The group at NetDevil knew they had a massive amount of work ahead of them. From the LEGO group's perspective, they had a world-famous brand and wanted to use it to create the biggest massively multiplayer online game in the world. Instead of being overwhelmed by the work that lay ahead of them, though, the studio was ecstatic. For the first time in maybe a decade, they didn't feel like they might go out of business next month. And there was this sort of sense of stability that came along with working with the LEGO group. Unfortunately, early prototypes on the game simply weren't delivering what the LEGO group really wanted. Mark Hansen here talking a little bit about some of those early impressions. Late 2006, we start to get some um, very early um, concepts developed in software. We can almost get a minifigure running around. And, and um, I would say here's where the bumpy part kind of come because people looked at it and go, okay, this really cool vision you sold into us, that's it. <laughs> and, and so it was really about how do you handle the expectations of what they're going to see because on the software side, people were jumping up and down, wow, we got a minifigure and we got 100,000 bricks on the screen and this is phenomenal. 
And where Lego looked at it and said, well, it doesn't look like one of our products. <laughs> you know, it's always difficult. This is Lisbeth Walter speaking. Because we, we had this vision and, and then... When we had the meetings, I only saw fractions of the game and we only saw fractions of it. Um, and you'd have to imagine, okay, how would all this come together? Uh, but it was just so difficult to, um, um, for me at least, to to, uh, to make sure that the Lego experience was clearly enough there. I wanted, you know, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about ideas of, of how you could, you know, build something in order to, get to the next level or do something. And, and part of it should not just be finding things. Part of it should be building things. And, and yet, of course, it shouldn't be too difficult. So it, it was a, a challenge all the time. Um, but I kept having this feeling that uh, you could say the game mechanics seem to overwhelm the Lego experience. And, and I, you know, I, I realized, of course, it's a game, of course. So it, it needs to have... Yeah some of the good game mechanics, but it just has to be in the Lego way. And how do you do that? That's, that's a difficult one. But I recall many of those meetings where I, I kept pushing at, you know, getting the Lego experience more prominent somehow. I think it was June or July of 2006. This is Mark Hansen speaking again. Um, Ryan, he was frustrated. I, I can remember I was over in Denver at the time. I was commuting back and forth between Denmark and, and Denver. And, um, you know, I remember going home and there was really no idea. And it was kind of a frustrating point about what is it going to be. And I know, you know, we've been working on this now for six months, getting the, the stuff down, improving the tech and getting what is all this going to be. And, uh, at that time, he just literally went into creative mode and said, tech with everything else. And he just wrote it out what he thought would be exciting. At that time, he said, what's going to be exciting is going to make me want to play this game. And at that time, he was having uh, children. And I know he had some young kids and they kind of inspired him. And, you know, he was a child and he wrote out what Lego Universe was going to be and made a, a video clip and it matched what we were looking for. And he really, he brought that vision to life with that thinking. And it, it really nailed it at, at that time. And it, it, it was a crucial, a crucial point to make that happen. As pre-production on the game continued, work on building up the team also went into high gear, with NetDevil suddenly being able to recruit the sort of people they would have never been able to afford before. The team quickly ran out of space in their current offices. And in June 2007, the LEGO Group officially announced LEGO Universe as a massively multiplayer online game. The press release promised that the game would include character advancement, expansive social and community features, and provide a child-safe alternative to other massively multiplayer online games. The company said the plan was for the game to come out in the fourth quarter of 2008. So that same month, 2007, right, Ryan? Um, yeah. NetDevil moves to a massive 30,000-square-foot warehouse. Um, that's roughly, you know, 2,800 square meters. And you and I have both been there. It, it's quite the place. It's, it has this really cool vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, you go through the entrance, and you see this kind of like a life-sized armored dune buggy. Just, just a real cool space. Yeah, I, I mean, I love it. It's all concrete floors. Uh, I think the... Uh, designed basically so people could use their little scooters. Remember, they used to zip yeah, around totally. on those scooters. Yeah. Um, and that, that dune buggy, I think, was a sort of a prop that they had used when they were building Auto Assault. Um, yeah. And it kind of looked like it was sort of crashing through, like it had done some sort of jump somewhere and was crashing through the <laughs> yeah. office. Yeah. And then they had a lot of artwork. They had like a giant Lego brick, like 14-foot Lego brick, you know? Yeah. And it was just on the right-hand side. I remember when you come in. I think they moved around a couple of times, but I just remember it being like super prominent. You'd come in and go like, whoa. Yeah. It sure made an impression. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and like not a lot of uh, walls. Because I think they wanted to have this sort of free flow of information and, and people yeah. being able to sort of talk to each other and be creative. Uh, they, they had this art exhibit area where employees could set up their own art. Yep. Um, and of course, in the back, they had a lot of entertainment options that I thought yeah. was pretty cool. 
um, like ping pong, basketball. basketball court. Yep, exactly, all that stuff. They had a little snack area too. I actually have you know some footage of you going and getting some snacks. Predators ride horses. <laughs> right. Yeah, my son, my son and I uh, visited once, and you you captured us. You captured yes. me getting a soda. For some yes. reason, that was yes. very interesting. <laughs> it was Not so to you, exciting. to other people. Everybody was excited. <laughs> <laughs> And let's not forget, you know, I know, you know, a lot of kids were super fascinated by this incredible section uh, that was just full of Lego bricks, right, Brian? Yeah, it was crazy. It was it was a library. It was a Lego library. And I, if I recall, you probably have a better memory of this than I do. But I remember it was sort of like storage bins, but it was sort of set up like kind of like a library. You could go in and find you know, a bin that was filled with the specific brick you needed. And I think they told me at the time it was one of the biggest collections yeah. of Lego pieces like in the world outside of the company's headquarters. Yeah, it was like the fourth biggest or something like that. And what's funny is um, I saw that space go through a couple iterations. They had, you know, a guy that was just assigned to, uh, you know, organizing it. Uh, after a while, it just got a little crazy. And they would have, you know, these these displays where you could see the pieces and where they were. And uh, they got really involved. And, and it was just an incredible space for anyone who's a fan of the Lego brick to go there and just be amazed by this, this sea of, of Lego pieces they had. And they, wasn't that person called like, I think they had a couple of them. They were called like Brick Monkeys or something. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. I'm making something it like no. that. Yeah, yeah. special title, though. special title. Being a Brick Monkey at Net Devil, it was a full-time job just to collect them all, made sure, you know, and, and what I love about that is that was built into the culture. I mean, that's something that the Lego group wanted them to do. They wanted them to like take breaks and build something or take something to their desk and be like actively engaged in the physicality of the Lego brick. And, and I think that's genius. That was great for the, the team. Yeah, totally. Uh, it was amazing. So as the team grew, right, the studio dove into the hard work of creating the game. The biggest initial challenge was that while the LEGO group approached the project with a specific goal in mind, it didn't have a clear path to getting there. Instead, they deliberately chose a developer to partner with that could help bring to life a shared vision of the LEGO group's initial concept of a LEGO online game. To be fair, they didn't know what they wanted. This is Scott Brown speaking. They just knew that they, they have this amazing... IP that is loved all over the world and they wanted to try to build an online game out of that. And so, yeah, that, I, that's what made it so fun is nobody knew what it meant at the beginning, right? And it was a lot of trial and error, you know, should it be exactly the TT games? Should it be totally different? You know, um, is it a game that you're building for their master builders or is it a game you're building for eight-year-olds, right? Like there was just so many questions, but it was also exciting. And like, I just remember that meeting with Peter and Ryan and I talking about that mail and Ryan lost his mind. He was so excited, (laughs) which was cool. Right. But uh, I mean, it was, it was really, it was, I mean, I don't want to say that Peter and I weren't excited, but Ryan was at a different level. Like he was just like, you could just see the wheels just, you know, spinning in his head. Like he was, he was pumped about it. These early days of prototyping led to a time-consuming process of NetDevil putting together ideas, meeting with the LEGO group who were in a time zone with an eight-hour time difference, vetting the ideas through proposal meetings, and inevitably going back to the drawing board. And this is Ryan Seabury talking about these challenges back in an interview I conducted in 2010. Working with a team in Europe has its difficulties. Obviously, the time difference is big. It's about an eight-hour or seven-hour difference between uh, Denmark and, and the U.S. Um, Lego's been really awesome, actually, in prioritizing development on the floor. But those guys are kind of machines. Like, the, the team that work on Lego Universe, uh, they don't really stop working. They just, you know, I, I get emails from them all around the clock a lot of times. And uh, they're just a really passionate group. And just, I, I kind of wish we all could sort of mentally connect instead of having to communicate through emails and, you know, especially long-distance stuff. There's just so many opportunities for miscommunication to happen. If we all had a hive mind, it would be a lot more efficient. So we'll work on that, I think, as some technology project in the future. But, yeah, it, it adds some difficulty, right, because the logistics are, are tough. To make matters more complicated, because the game wasn't tied to any particular theme set— NetDevil spent a lot of time repitching and re-explaining ideas. Scott Brown talks us through some of these frustrations. Yeah, I mean, that was probably the hardest part is that 
You know, Lego didn't have someone on their team with a vision of the specifics of the game. They really were looking to a game developer to build that. And so it took a lot of time of like, we would have an idea, we would spend some time putting it together, and then we would meet with their team. And then, you know, Lego sent out execs every quarter and they were serious, you know, proposal meetings. And you know, Lego is a pretty siloed business, I would say. And so it had, you know, the guys that run Castle is a different group than maybe the people that run Space or whatever. And so they had never had a project that was trying to sort of unite all those teams. And those teams themselves didn't understand, you know, how big of a role did they want to play or did they not want to play in it? You know, did they want to be associated or not at all? And so there was just a lot of back and forth internally to Lego with our team. It was just, it was complex because again, they were trying, and then, you know, they're trying to ramp up a publishing branch (laughs) and, you know, being an online game, especially a kid's game means safety and billing and just all of these things that they'd had some touch in, you know? And so they're also building up this arm of their group while we're building up our team on the game. And so, you know, it was a little bit crazy, but it was also incredible. (laughs) It was really fun to be a part of. The growing team at NetDevil quickly identified a number of other major challenges that the game faced and started to work on solving them. A major effort was also put into online child safety. The concern was how to deliver a creative sandbox for children without risking someone ruining the experience by creating content that wasn't suitable for a child. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that added so many layers. If, if you didn't have the child safety component in there. Here, Ryan Seabury again. I honestly think the game, the development of the game to launch would have probably cost easily 30% less. I mean, it was literally that much of our budget. It was just an enormous undertaking. And, um, you know, I'm pretty proud of where it ended up. And I think I think there's a lot of games out there even today that build themselves as kid-friendly that don't really take it seriously. And there's a lot of loopholes for people to, you know, have bad actors in their space. And um, and it's unfortunate and I, I wish it was better, uh, but I'm proud of what we did with it and that we did take it as seriously as we did and that Lego was willing to, you know, put the money behind um, behind that initiative. We're using state-of-the-art technology for uh, chat filtering and chat monitoring to make sure that, you know, if kids start giving out information they probably shouldn't be giving out, we can actually detect that and handle that real time. Anything that can be edited by a user in the game ultimately does get viewed by a moderator. They look at the name of the model. They can look at the names of the pets that you create. Everything that you can create and customize that ends up being viewable by other users ends up being viewed by a moderator first to make sure that this looks okay. We have what are called whitelists and blacklists. And a whitelist is a list of legal words that you can say. And then a blacklist obviously is words you can't say. And we can use both of those to make sure that nobody says anything they're not supposed to say. We also want the child to have a very good play experience that allows them to feel like they really are free to do what they want to do. And that comes with how they can build to how they can interact with their friends. So a best friends list and how they can have more ability by having a best friends list that mom has okayed for them to have a best friends list and that they connect and so they can have open chat. They can, you know, communicate together to build and expand their worlds together. We're having meetings about this all the time and it's really blowing me away how dedicated Lego is to keeping their brand really safe. And I feel invested in that. I mean, from a production standpoint, how do I and my team, how do we hang on to that vision of what safety means to Lego and how do we provide that? It's an incredible responsibility. You can say it's true, but if you don't make it true, it isn't true. And what's in the balance here is this glorious brand and this wonderful experience that you want kids to have. So feeling like I'm a guardian of that in some place is really where the safety is sort of the most special to me. That was a clip from a LEGO Universe safety video that I did while covering the game development. And you heard there from lead core programmer Nathan Gray, technical director Eric Urdang, 
Mark Hansen, of course, and at the end there, Chris Sherland, who was the lead producer on the game. And so obviously this gives us a lot more detail and insight on the child safety efforts of the Laker group, but there are also other feats within the game creation. And to address the technical challenge of creating a high-polygon world made entirely of interactive bricks, one group came up with the idea of building a massive Lego brick castle and then creating technology to try and reduce the polygon count and impact the graphics would have on whatever system was trying to run the game. The technologists also struggled with how to deliver the same sort of visual appeal of a TT game like Lego Star Wars without leaning on the same approach of using canned animations for building and deconstructing. It all had to be dynamic to allow players to create content and modify the world in real time. That very initial phase where we were yeah, scoping sort of technical capabilities and, and figuring out the right tech to use and building our team up, our initial core team. Here's Ryan Seabury speaking. Uh, and during that time, we were writing a design document, which, oh man, if I remember, ended up being like 300 pages. And by the end of the project, mostly useless, <laughs> to be honest, right? Like, uh, I think very little detail in that actually ever got used. Um, but it was, sure was a nice design document. Um, but that that was a at least a six-month to a year effort, probably combined of of those things happening. And so that kind of gave us like, okay, now we know what tech we're going to use. Now we kind of have our team built. Um, we know where we think we can go in a couple of years trying to, you know, guess where hardware was going to be and so forth. Um, and then we started playing around with the core concepts of the game and how do we, you know, how do we deal with things like, Death, player death, right? Like normally, let's say in a fantasy game, you get you turn into a ghost and you revive at a graveyard or something. And there's some little fictional thing to that. It was this group that seemed to, at times, struggle the most, hampered by both a blank page approach from the Lego group, but also the sometimes conflicting advice or suggestions that were given. For instance, the LEGO group had two sets of visions for building. On the one hand, they wanted LEGO Universe to be a game that a young child could use to build with, but on the other, they wanted their master builders from the adult fan of LEGO community who create stunning real-world brickscapes to be able to do things like create the Taj Mahal in the game. That meant figuring out a rule set that would both follow the real-world rules of LEGO brick building, taking into account what could and couldn't fit together, but also make it as simple as grabbing two bricks and snapping them together. Other ideas that expanded the scope of the project exponentially included adding what was called properties, where you could build and add behaviors to your own creations, racing, and the possibility of tying the game to LEGO Factory, allowing players to purchase physical sets for their in-game model designs. Quickly, it became clear that the good and bad of working on a LEGO game was the endless possibilities. What I think was wrong was all the pieces and components that we tried to bite off in one fell swoop. Here, Peter Grunde speaking. We tried to be a kid's game, so it was easy accessible. We tried to be a game that adhered to all the Lego brick standards and, and, and branding. We tried to be a building game. We tried to be a TT game telling stories. We tried to be an MMO. We tried to be uh, a vehicle and a platform for future products. Uh, it was a lot. It was, we chewed off a lot. Most people would just pick one or two tenants or uh, thoughts and maybe just go for one. Um, but, you know, it was, it seemed at, the, at that point it was all or nothing because, uh, you know, towards mid midway, towards the end, People started to see Minecraft and realize, oh boy, we could have made it so much easier and simpler if we'd have just done it with one brick. <laughs> As the team continued to iterate on this massive undertaking, the initial window for the game's official launch, which was October 2008, continued to creep closer and closer. In an effort to deal with the big time difference between Denver and Denmark, the LEGO group decided they needed to move some of their people to Colorado to speed up feedback loops and be more responsive with guidance, according to Ronnie Schur, who was the director of development on the LEGO Universe project. As I recall, Mark felt like he was far away. Although he's American, he was living in Denmark at the time. And uh, the commute between uh, 
Denmark and Colorado is not uh, it's not convenient. Like it's not easy. It's uh, it's uh, it's uh, super long. So so we talked about how to resolve it, and we came up with the idea that we need to have a team close to NetDevil that's able to provide them feedback on an ongoing basis. So that idea was born, and and if I recall correctly, um, it took about a year from we started that conversation uh, until I was actually on the ground. So uh, so I moved uh, to Colorado with my family to sort of uh, build a Lego, a Lego team uh, locally on site to ensure that we were able to uh, give NetDevil the uh, level of support that they, they deserved and needed in order to move forward as, as fast as possible. As all of this is happening, the team at NetDevil is exploding in size, driven by the LEGO Group's willingness to fund teams to tackle specific problems that were cropping up. Eventually, that massive staff became its own problem for Scott Brown, a problem of cash flow. With no outside investors, the payroll is starting to outpace how much money the studio has on hand. Combined with those money issues, running the studio was also becoming something that Brown and the others were starting to worry they couldn't handle. We are constantly growing like mad. And what gets tricky is, you know, cash flow. Um, none of us had any money or any outside investors. And so things like, you know, if if a Lego payment is late, you know, payroll is starting to be five, six, even eight hundred thousand dollars, right? And and so at that point, I now have to like uh, I'm mortgaging my house to make payroll. And so the size of the studio is becoming very difficult for us professionally. The day-to-day, like how we're working is fine, but you know, now we have layers of management and now the just the money, the reality of the money cost of running a studio that big is very different, <laughs> you know, than when it's five of us. And so, you know, I think we were well over a hundred employees by then. And I think we were over 200 employees by the time universe ships. So, right. Like the studio is, is changing quite a bit because we're getting so large. Um, and just financially that's becoming very difficult for me to, to manage. And, and so that's why we began looking for outside investors to try to find a way to help relieve some of that. I, I kind of regret, uh, some of the things that went down within that, um, that whole scenario, to be honest, me, myself, Scott and Ryan being the owners. This is Peter Grundy. You could imagine, though, uh, the stress level that we were at. We had, um, we were working on a project uh, for Codemasters. Um, we were, uh, were doing an uh, initial pitch and prototype for Disney. Um, and we were trying to also make that software that we were developing into our own a platform for our own game. And we also had Lego Universe. So, you know, you, you mentioned the number 150 that were on the Lego group, but the whole studio, by the time, you know, we ended up closing was about 200, 230 people. Um, you can imagine with three owners who are so heads down on what the product is, we were not looking at a higher level from a company standpoint, like, you know, we, we didn't have the C, CEO and CFO um, clout that someone like a, a, an EA did, you know, like where they were really looking into the future. We were so heads down in the pro- on all the pro- projects. Um, and financially, the three of us were responsible for everyone's payroll. Uh, that sounds crazy, right, when you think about it? Um, three people's houses could not support if we if we if Lego decided not to pay, three people's um, you know capital on, on on three houses couldn't support one month's payroll. So we that's why as owners we were like we've got to do something here. We've got to get investment. We've got to restructure the company some way. Uh, and that's when offers and people started coming in about selling. Um, so Gazillion was not only the only ones that we talked to. So, 
Where the deal with the Lego group brought a level of stability to the team, a new sort of stress was building up as the team grew first to 100 and then more than 200, and finances became tight simply because of that growing payroll. Then a conflux of issues brought the stress, the worries, the looming nightmares into focus. Like many video game contracts, the one between NetDevil and the LEGO Group required the company to hit certain milestones by certain dates in order to get paid. As the work and problems grew, the things that had to be accomplished for each milestone grew too, and soon the studio was crunching, working long, desperate hours more and more. That crunch, Brown now says, was one of his biggest regrets. Then, with the pressure building, stress building, everyone working long, hard hours, the unthinkable nearly happened. And it started with a letter. Lego sent us a letter that we were in breach of our contract. This is Scott Brown speaking. By not staying up to speed on deliverables, which surprised us um, because we sort of felt like there was never a decision we made alone, right? If we decided, you know what, we should redo this to make it better. We did that in a meeting with people from Lego. So that was that was a little bit surprising for us. And I think, again, is not a reflection of them trying to be evil publishers. It's a position of them not used to being a publisher, <laughs> right? Right. Not used to being in this role. They're used to licensing it. Right. And now there's now they're paying for the development and they're dealing with the delays. And I think I think they saw it as a way to pressure us into maybe delivering faster um, where we felt like the speed was not a not relative to our skills or or motivation. But it was change, <laughs> like the amount of changes that were being requested and the iteration were slowing us down. And so that was tricky. And that added immensely to the financial pressure. Yeah, and, and I guess that, that is the other question. When you get this letter, if you're in breach of contract, what does that mean for you as a studio? Does that mean that potentially you're not going to get those payments? You know, to be honest, we didn't know what it meant, <laughs> right? It was like, okay, well, what are we supposed to do with this, this thing that's happened now? And it didn't seem to impact the leadership from Lego that we worked with, didn't seem any different or... Like it didn't feel like something had changed. It was just, it felt like this was this letter that they had sent to kind of like give us a kick in the butt, I guess. Um, you know, to a team that's already working incredibly high hours. It just, it was strange. The letter and implied threat of a delayed payment that could have jeopardized payroll worried the founders. While the work proceeded, it was this letter that became the catalyst for NetDevil to start looking for outside funding. While the company began discussions with potential investors, they ultimately decided to go with Gazillion. So, Ronnie, uh, the the question here then is, did the Lego group have the opportunity to purchase NetDevil before NetDevil ended up selling itself to Gazillion? Uh, yes. This is Ronnie Scherer speaking. But but we were never interested. Like, like it was not in the cards. Like... like uh, I'm I'm confident that that Scott brought up like his personal challenges with sort of being personally on the hook for for everything. Especially, um, we had some uh, milestones, if I recall correctly, that uh, where we refused to pay NetDevil um, because they didn't meet the the agreements that we made. And of yeah. course, that that was uh, you know in hindsight. That that was a bit of a move for a big company and a, a small company, but but it was also one of the few sort of strong levers we had to uh, sort of uh, determine, you know, the the direction and the velocity of things. So I think it was also to like like it it didn't happen lightly. Uh, if other people have talked about this, uh, I, I think it was uh, very deliberate choice to sort of uh, pull that lever and make sure that they understood that, hey, they can't just keep pushing deadlines and, you know. But but I think that was also a, a, a big part of our involvement locally. Uh, I think, I, I would like to think that that helped the relationship a lot, that, uh, that we were closer to them on, on site.
Gazillion was founded by venture capitalist Rob Hutter, investor Bhavan Shah, and Doom creator John Romero in 2005 to develop and publish online games. Initially, the NetDevil team was blown away by Gazillion, and in particular, its pedigree of founders. The idea seemed clear. NetDevil would be purchased by this massive company with talent and multiple studios and grow into its own. But they were also talking with others like Sony Online Entertainment and, of course, the LEGO Group. The LEGO Group declined, and Gazillion ultimately purchased NetDevil outright. It was the summer of 2008, and now nearly two years into development and under this new ownership, the NetDevil team continued to work on a key problem. They still weren't entirely sure what the game was meant to be. Another looming problem? Gazillion's ownership. As mentioned in the beginning, this is part one of our two-part examination of the massively multiplayer online game, LEGO Universe. And since there's a lot more ground to cover in telling this mammoth of a story, we will forego our usual conclusions, uh, those kind of lessons learned moments that Brian and I usually do at the ending, and instead just provide this little sneak peek into what's coming in the next episode. One of the kids was playing, and I think he peed his pants in, in the kid <laughs> test. And his mom came in and was like, what's up? And the kid was like, I thought if I left, they wouldn't let me back in. You know, it was, I just was dying. I think we were walking, looking through like one of those glass things going, what's something strange is going on with this kid? I don't know. I don't understand. <laughs> That's when like, you know, you have something triggering people, right? Like he wouldn't leave the room. He was willing to suffer this humiliation. <laughs> like I tell people, <laughs> you don't want to be in this business unless you love making video games. <laughs> Like, I love making games. Like, I just, I can't imagine doing anything else. And so, at least I didn't have that stress. Like, yes, money was stressful and milestones were stressful and PR stuff was stressful, but making games was not stressful. You still love going to work every day. And I think that, that's what I think kept us all going. The initial conversation that Gazillion had with Lego did not go well. So, that was a huge red flag. This is the most disastrous decision Lego ever could have made. And really, it, it was made kind of fast. Lego allowed it to be sold. And it just turned into a nightmare from that point on. All my self-value was sort of tied to achievement. And then to have Lego Universe, this like thing I was super proud of, just poof, gone, was a pretty big hit. And I didn't really realize the impact it had on me for probably a, a good year. But it, it now, you know, looking back and after going through that therapy experience, I can see it very clearly, like, how much that sort of created a self-dialogue for me that was like, um, every project I've ever worked on in those 10 years at NetDevil doesn't exist anymore, right? Like, all those MMOs are out of service. You just, you can't play the game anymore. Yeah, that was, that was tough. Bits and Bricks is made possible by Lego Games. Our producer is Ronnie Scherer. Your hosts are Brian Crescente and Ethan Vincent. Episode producing and editing by Ethan Vincent. Writing by Brian Crescente. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Music by Brian Tyler from the remastered original game soundtrack of Lego Universe. Additional music by Peter Primer, founder of music, and Enric Lindstrand from the award-winning game Lego Builder's Journey, which you can play on Apple Arcade today. We'd like to thank our participants, Scott Brown, Mark Hansen, Peter Grundy, Ryan Seabury, Ronnie Scherer, and Lisbeth Walter. Additional voices featured were Brian Johnson, Nathan Gray, Chris Sherlin, and Eric Erdon. We'd also like to acknowledge the entire LEGO Games team. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. <laughs> <laughs>